0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today's episode is my response to Star Trek Discovery's Season 4 premiere, titled Kobayashi Maru, which is now streaming in the United States and Canada, but is not yet available worldwide. If you wish to avoid spoilers about Season 4 because you haven't seen it yet, stop this podcast right now. I promise it'll still be here when you are able to watch the first episode of Season 4. Now, I feel like I should also warn you all about one other thing before we begin. I'm not planning on doing these mini-response episodes weekly as I did for Season 3. The truth is, Real-life work is still incredibly busy at the moment, so I'll only be crafting response episodes for Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery when I feel that there is something truly exciting that needs to be said about the science in that episode, and I have the time to do it. That said, this is definitely the situation for Season 4 Episode 1, Kobayashi Maru. So let's get started. Just like my season three responses, these episodes will take the form of three short segments, think, feel, and question. My think for this episode is Magneto Reception. The opening scene of Kobayashi Maru featured Burnham and Book being chased by a bunch of Alshane. Humanoid aliens who could fly when they summoned a bunch of bioluminescent butterflies to aggregate upon them, forming wings. Complexity scientist Dr. Stuart Bartlett smartly nicknamed the Alshane fractal butterfly people because a bunch of tiny butterflies gathered together to create a single, larger, butterfly-like assemblage. However, in this scene, these Alshane had real trouble flying at first. It's like they didn't know which way was north. Let's listen to the crew of the Discovery science out this situation. Breeze, we could use some help? You want me to send a team down? No, it's a science problem. Is this a chase? Are you in the middle of a chase? The Alshane can't stay on course in flight. I think we need to get their satellites working again. Captain, we'll figure it out. Uh, Commander Stamets. Unless the Alshane had been hitting the Romulan whiskey, which I doubt, the problem has to be... Oh, the planet's magnetic poles. They started shifting 300 years ago. They're now 14 degrees west of where they'd been for hundreds of thousands of years. Alshane used the magnetic fields to navigate during flight. Like birds? Oh, did you know birds are born with a, a mineral substance called magnetite that helps them determine the magnetic field so they can find true north? They'd have developed technology to help compensate for the shift. Captain was right. The dead satellites, There's geomagnetic two magnetic compensators. compensators. Nice work. Both of you. So Adira makes the brilliant suggestion that the Alshane use their planet's magnetic field to navigate. And that the planet's magnetic field is currently undergoing a reversal in polarity. And the Alshane's satellite grid, which acts as magnetic compensators, is out of commission. So the planetary science here is spot on. Earth's magnetic field does flip every so often. We know this because Earth is constantly generating new crust as molten rock freezes at oceanic spreading centers. The magnetic crystals in these new rocks align themselves with the direction of Earth's magnetic field at the time of their formation, preserving a record of Earth's magnetic field in the deep past, long before humans walked this planet. By measuring the remnant crustal magnetism of Earth's ancient sea floor, we can read the history of Earth's field flipping over time like a barcode, flip, flip, flip. We see that Earth's magnetic field does flip every few hundreds of thousands of years, and each flip takes a few thousand years to complete. So Adira's numbers in this scene were spot on. Now, do other planets have magnetic field reversals too? Turns out, yes. We see magnetic banding on Mars' surface that looks very similar to the barcode-like pattern recorded on Earth's seafloor. This suggests that Ancient Mars used to have a global magnetic field that flipped periodically, and that ancient Mars had something akin to plate tectonics, the creation of new crust that recorded different magnetic field polarities at different times. However, Mars has changed dramatically since its earliest days. Its global magnetic field is dead. Its tectonic motion has ceased, and today, Mars's surface is quite inhospitable to life as we know it. This all makes Mars a beautiful case study for how planetary processes, from the core where liquid iron turns to generate a magnetic dynamo, to the crust which recycles material at the surface of the planet, to the escape of atmospheric molecules to space, all impact planetary habitability. Okay, back to the Alshanes. They use their planet's magnetic fields to navigate, but how exactly is that done? Sensing a magnetic field is called magnetoreception, an ability that we see all over life on Earth, from bacteria to birds. Many magnetotactic bacteria use magnetite, the iron oxide mineral that Adira suggested, or greggite, which is an iron sulfide, to sense Earth's magnetic field. These bacteria orient themselves along field lines to more efficiently swim towards regions with greater oxygen. Now, Super interestingly, a study published in the journal Nature Microbiology in 2019 shows that a protist, now that's a single-celled eukaryotic organism, forms a symbiotic relationship with magnetic bacteria in its environment. I'll link this paper in the show notes if you'd like to take a look. But basically, this hulk of a protist cell hosts all of these little bacteria on the outside of its body. Now, the protist itself has no way of sensing Earth's magnetic field. But all of its little bacterial companions can. It's like the bacteria guide the protist in the right direction to find nutrients. Meanwhile, the protist feeds these bacteria all of the hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and acetate that they could ever want, and carry the bacteria towards more promising environments. Curiously, these bacteria seem to have lost the ability to swim for themselves, a possible evolutionary streamlining of their systems due to this symbiotic relationship. This amazing, mutualistic arrangement of protist and magnetic bacteria reminds me of the Alshane and their butterflies. Now, it's not established in the Discovery episode whether it's the humanoid Alshane or the butterflies that they associate with that are magnetoreceptive. But if it's the butterflies, this extraterrestrial arrangement that we see in Star Trek Discovery is very similar to the protist and its magnetoreceptive bacteria. But what if it's the Alshane who are the ones sensing their world's magnetic field? Do humanoids have magnetoreceptive capabilities? Do we? That's what a group of Caltech scientists, led by Professor Joe Kirschvink, is trying to investigate right now whether human beings have a mild form of magnetoreception that most of us are not even aware of. In an experiment, Kirschvink put volunteer human test subjects in a completely dark, completely isolated radio frequency shielded room and artificially shifted the magnetic field around them, measuring the participants' brainwaves all the while. The scientists found that some people's brainwaves did change in a way that was consistent with sensory input even though they weren't seeing, or hearing, or tasting, or feeling anything change. The only thing that was changing was the magnetic field of the room. Now, it's unlikely that this means that most of us can just go out and navigate reliably without our GPS or compasses. But what it does probably signal is that sometime long ago, We had a distant ancestor that could sense the Earth's magnetic field, and over the course of evolution, that sense has diminished greatly, though not entirely, simply because we don't need it. If you're interested, I've linked to this paper in the show notes, too. So, in conclusion... I loved the beginning scene of this episode. It was exciting, witty, heartfelt, but most of all, the science was just so exquisitely spot-on. Before we leave the think section, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Kweijan's poor moon. In this episode, we see this moon just before it gets ripped apart by the mysterious gravitational anomaly. Planetary scientist Dr. James Tuttlekeen noticed that this moon was actually Earth's moon, (laughs) with just a few tiny modifications. Basically, it seems like the Star Trek Discovery production team just took an image of our moon and added a few extra dark splotches. (laughs) I'm so glad that I can always count on James to catch these kinds of things. Okay, now on to my feel. In addition to the science being exquisite, the music in this episode was also truly fantastic. Hearing Archer's theme from Star Trek Enterprise when President Rillick introduced the new Archer space dock, brought a tear to my eye. Star Trek Enterprise was the very first Star Trek series that I called my own. Now, many of you know that I grew up in the 90s, surrounded by TNG, DS9, and especially Voyager. But Enterprise was the first series I ever had an anticipatory fan experience with. You know, the first series that I watched the premiere live on TV. The first series that I swore to myself I'd never miss an episode of. The first series that I would know everything about. As a fan, I felt an ownership over this show that I'd never known before. And that's why, for all of its faults and hiccups and truly terrible episodes... I always yearn to see Enterprise get greater recognition from contemporary Star Trek. And the Archer space dock did that for me. Not that any of you need the reminder, but one of Starfleet's original missions was scientific exploration. And now that we are able, we are embracing that mission once again. Cadets. If I may turn your attention to the newly constructed Archer Space Dock. Here, our existing fleet will be upgraded and the next generation of Starfleet vessels constructed. Vessels that will once again take us to new worlds, new civilizations, places you can't even begin to imagine right now. And finally, my question. So historian Desonoka Sonoka is a genius. After watching the episode Kobayashi Maru, he said to me, the theme of this episode is disorientation. Disorientation. It began with the disorientation of the Alshane, who couldn't navigate due to their planet's magnetic reversal. Then it shifted to the disorientation of Deep Space Repair Beta 6, whose gravity generators were all out of whack and everyone was walking on the ceiling. The birds of Quajon were disoriented by the coming of the gravitational anomaly. The people of Kaminar were disoriented until Seru gave his Sagan esque speech, urging them to embrace their cosmic interconnectedness. And then Seru himself felt disoriented, torn between his promise to serve Sukal and his heart's desire to serve the Greater Federation. And finally, Tilly shows a little disorientation in her new rank as Lieutenant, or something. Those cadets, that feels like 1,000 years ago. Uh And yesterday, which it was, simultaneously. Did you know there are people out there that don't have to put up with space-time shenanigans? I bet they sleep great. Mmm, good for them. (laughs) (laughs) Lieutenant used to feel so far away. Is this about Osira? Because you deserve that promotion, Tilly. You all do. Oh, I know. I think I. But before Tilly can finish, she's interrupted. Captain, the Admiral you. Searching. This is Commander Nellis from Deep Space Repair Beta 6. Sending a request for help from any Starfleet vessel that might hear us. Later in the episode, on Deep Space Repair Beta 6, Commander Nullus says that he's been living on autopilot too long. And Tilly gives this expression of recognition, like Nullus has just put words to a feeling that Tilly hadn't been able to describe before. Then, Nullus asks Tilly, What's next for you? And she says, oh, uh, I don't know, to be honest. This isn't the Tilly from past seasons of Discovery. The Tilly we saw so confident that she would be captain one day. Is it imposter syndrome or something else? Is Tilly feeling that Starfleet is no longer the career path for her? I've always identified with Tilly more than any other character on Discovery. As an early career scientist myself, I resonated with her nervousness about impressing senior scientists like Stamets. Her courage to pursue something that seemed so far off, like captaincy. Her open heart towards people like Burnham, Poe, and even Mirror O. And her unbreakable enthusiasm for her work. That's the power of math, people! (laughs) But life happens. Goals shift. Priorities rearrange themselves, often silently behind your back. Friends who once told me that their only goal in life was to become a professor have drifted away from that path as family or geographic location, or new interests, or dealing with a global pandemic takes precedence. Now, these aren't bad things, for as a wise, pointy-eared scientist once said, change is the essential process of all existence. So my biggest question for Season 4 moving forward is where will change Take Tilly. Sometimes, trudging through a bog of doubt and uncertainty can lead you back to the path that you always knew you should be on. But sometimes, getting lost and disoriented can show you new paths that you've never imagined. I am so intrigued to see where Sylvia Tilly goes from here. That's all from me for this week. Until next time, see you out.